The title of this sermon is Denethor's Dilemma. No, I haven't lost my mind. I am referring to a tragic figure in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Denethor, the 26th hereditary steward of Gondor, whose family has ruled for a thousand years, awaiting the return of the rightful heir of Isildur, who was slain after defeating Sauron and taking his ring of power. In the climactic scene of his life, Denethor despairs. His favorite son, Boromir, is dead, slain by orcs while protecting Frodo, the ring-bearer. His second son, Faramir, lies in a feverish coma, struck down defending Gondor from Sauron's evil hordes. Denethor has been using his palantir, or seeing stone, to try to foresee the future. But the Dark Lord Sauron has captured his imagination and driven him to despair, showing him through the stone the countless forces at Sauron's disposal. The outer ring of Gondor's defenses has already been breached. Even though Aragorn, the rightful king, is on his way at the head of a phantom army, Denethor has lost all hope. Retreating to the House of the Dead, he cries out, Against the power that arises, there is no victory. I am steward of the House of Anarion. I will not stoop down to be the dotard chamberlain of an upstart. Even where his claim proved to me, I will not bow to such a one, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship and dignity. What then would you have, said Gandalf, if your will could have its way? Denethor replied, I would have things as they were all the days of my life and in the days of my forefathers before me, to be lord of this city in peace, and leave my chair to a son after me. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have naught, neither life diminished, nor love halved, nor honor abated. And Denethor breaks the rod of his stewardship and casts himself on the pyre to die. So what is Denethor's dilemma? His past is gone forever. The present is costly and dangerous and uncertain. Driven to despair by his trafficking with evil, he views even the hope of the return of the king with fear and loathing. He cannot go back. He will not go forward. He chooses death. And in his death, the dark lord of Mordor achieves another victory over men. Denethor's dilemma may be ours. We too are stewards of a king whose return is promised but delayed. We too live in perilous times in which keeping the faith is starting to cost us more. We too are harassed, distracted, and confused by evil. So which future beckons for us? Some secular utopia or the kingdom of God? We too are tempted to turn away from the hope in quiet despair and break the rod of our stewardship. Our gospel reading reminds us this first Sunday of Advent that we are promised the return of Jesus in great power and glory. Every eye will see him coming in the clouds. 
He will be as manifest as lightning zigzagging across a summer sky. He will gather his chosen ones to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he will judge the nations. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels have whole chapters devoted to Jesus' prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives about his return in glory. John's Gospel refers to it and his return, as does the epistle of John. The other epistles are full of references to the return, especially Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, from which our second reading is taken, which mentions the return in every chapter. And the entire book of Revelation is a vision of Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. In the Nicene Creed, which we recite weekly, we affirm our belief that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Friends, this is no footnote in our theological system. The return is a major Christian doctrine, which should be the focus of the short four-week season of Advent. Yet the evasion of the churches is extraordinary. Advent has instead become exclusively a season of preparation for Christmas, or a time to reflect on the Virgin Mary. Liturgical purple, the color of penitence, is even being replaced by pale blue, Mary's color. Those of us who consider ourselves orthodox and who would never knowingly abandon any article of the Nicene Creed are often guilty of an intellectual affirmation of Christ's return in glory without the existential hope and obedience that affirmation should bring. But why should this be? Why is it so hard to hold on to this hope? Is it because cranks and kooks have presumed to set the date for the event and been disappointed? Does that mean it won't happen because it didn't happen in the year 1000 or 1844 or 1946 or 2011 or 10 days from now on December 12, 2012? No, the real reason is that this hope is hard to believe because it cuts right across the grain of our shallow faith. First, the return of Christ is based on faith, not history. We are asked to believe something that hasn't happened rather than something like the incarnation or the resurrection, which a witnessing community, the church, tells us has happened. We can't stand on anybody's shoulders when it comes to the return. Second, it will be a cosmic event, not a private, personal experience. It just seems to take less faith to believe that God has answered my prayer than to believe that the entire planet will see Jesus coming with power and glory. Third, the return is objective in nature rather than subjective. That is to say, it doesn't matter whether you want the return to happen or not, whether it's part of your belief system or not. You will experience it. Atheist, Hindu, Muslim, agnostic, together with believers. And fourth, it brings with it the one thing that you and I fear most, rebel against most, avoid most in our social interaction, judgment. 
You see, if your religion is nostalgic, that is based on the past, private, personal, subjective, and entirely accepting of others' belief systems, then the personal return of Christ in glory is like a large meteorite coming right through your picture window. But if you abandon this hope, if you say, as many have, the early church believed and expected this, but now we know better, we know that Christ comes again wherever there is love, and love has no judgment in it. You have done a terrible thing with incalculable costs. Deny the personal return of Christ in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, and you have abandoned the planet Earth to become the domain of mankind and be whatever the strongest of us decide it shall be, without accountability, without stewardship. Believe in a morally ambiguous planet with an indeterminate future from which the faithful escape at death into a spiritual realm called heaven, and you have overthrown justice. For in such a world there will be no remedy for the abandoned child, the abused wife, the cheated business partner, the murdered political opponent, the trapped garment worker, who must now depend, entirely depend, upon the corrupt and insufficient efforts of human institutions of justice. The kingdom of God will not be established on earth. The only hope for those who respond to the gospel message will be that incorporeal escape to heaven. Most serious of all, God will not be sovereign, able and willing to restore his rule on this and every other planet in the universe, but instead a sort of first responder who gets some of us out of the mess we've made of the world he's given us. Do not take that path. Do not lose that hope. Instead, take heart. Remember the words in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You and I are living in the church age, a time of grace under the great commission and the great commandments. And if on the stroke of midnight on Christmas Eve, our Lord has not returned, then celebrate his birth and prepare to follow faithfully for another year of grace. But in the meantime, remember these four Advent watchwords that will keep alive in your hearts the hope of Christ's return. If you read Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, these four commands will jump out at you. Watch, pray, serve, endure. Watch. In Matthew, Jesus says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In Mark, Jesus says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. In Luke, we read, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. 
The premise underlying all these warnings is that no one, including Jesus himself, knows the day and hour of his return. There are indications in the Gospels that it will be after a considerable period of time. In Luke, Jesus says it will be after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled in trampling down Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was ruled by Gentiles from Jesus' day until 1967. And in Matthew, Jesus says, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The Wycliffe Bible translators will tell you that this has not yet been accomplished. In the light of these verses, it is not possible to understand the promise in all three gospels that, quote, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, to mean that Jesus promises his return within the lifetime of some of his contemporaries. This promise may apply to the destruction of the temple, which is another focus of the discourses on the Mount of Olives. And this was fulfilled in 70 AD. Or it may be that the word generation means in this case, as it can both in Greek and English, not contemporaries, but offspring or descendants. If so, Jesus is promising the endurance of the church, which has been born through the generative power of his word until he returns. This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. I think this interpretation is made more likely by the next parallel verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why not? Because the community brought into being through them will continue to remember and proclaim them. Now, watchfulness as a constant state of mind isn't easy. An old Navy friend of mine says it's like practicing for general quarters on shipboard so you can be ready to go to your battle station whenever the klaxon sounds. The second Advent command helps us to keep watching, and that is pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples slept, but Jesus in Luke 21 says, stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The Lord's Prayer helps us do this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a petition that can only have its fulfillment in Christ's return. Later in the prayer we say, lead us not into temptation, which might better be translated, save us in the time of trial. But if you must bring us to it, deliver us from evil. And this petition as well will have its fullest meaning in the tribulation that will precede Christ's return. Remembering these things as you recite the Lord's Prayer will keep you watchful. But above all, join with the early Christians in that simple Aramaic cry of the heart, which occurs twice in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16 and Revelation 22, Maranatha, which means our Lord come. 
Any tendency we have to think that we can solve our own problems without divine intervention undervalues both sin and the power of God. So this Advent season, pray. Pray for his return and pray for the strength to await it. But lest you think that an Advent Christian is a passive recluse from the world, quietly awaiting Christ's return, the third command is serve. In Matthew 24, we learn that the faithful and wise servant is the one his master finds doing what he was told to do when the master returns. And from the parable of the talents, we learn that our natural abilities and spiritual gifts and opportunities are to be used to multiply the lives touched by and incorporated into God's kingdom. And we will give an accounting for our service. The unfaithful servant is the one who refuses to work for the master and buries his talents. With the great commandments and the great commission, we have plenty to do in the meantime. As the t-shirt a friend of mine once saw being worn on a New York City street, put it, Jesus is coming. Look busy. The last watchword speaks to the context of our Advent obedience, and that is endure. The Greek word is hupomeneo, endure, and hupomene, endurance. It means literally to hang in there, to stick fast. This is an important prerequisite for everything else for watching and praying and serving, because Christ's return will clearly be preceded by tribulation, natural disasters, political and social disorder, false prophets and false Christs, persecution, including betrayal by family members, although the Spirit will empower our testimony in this time. The one who endures to the end will be saved, is the refrain in all the gospel discourses. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25 warns us that we may need spiritual stamina for the long haul. Luke reports this promise of Jesus. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. The command to endure should make us less surprised by persecution and less susceptible to doubt or self-pity, and that will help us to endure. Advent is a short season, but its true color is purple because it is a time of reflection and repentance. Is the hope of Christ's return really alive in us? Or is it just something we assent to intellectually? How well are we obeying the four Advent commands? Watch, pray, serve, endure. Are we ready to give our accounting? Unlike Lent, which should focus on our personal spiritual journey, Advent is a good time, I think, for a corporate emphasis. During this season, I urge you to read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. After the prologue and the greeting to the seven churches comes the first vision of John, the vision of the Son of Man, and then follows the seven letters to seven churches, all in Asia Minor. Each letter follows the same format, 
It begins with a greeting in which some aspect of the vision of the Son of Man is applied to the church being addressed. Then Jesus makes an assessment of the spiritual condition of the church with the words, I know. Then follows a warning to that church and then a promise to that church. Each letter ends with this admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This Advent, I suggest you consider what the Spirit is saying to you about this community, the Church of the Cross. What aspect of the vision of the Son of Man applies particularly to us? How do you think Jesus assesses us? That is, what does he know about us? Think particularly of our obedience to the Advent watchwords. Does the hope of Christ's return really matter in our lives? Is the discipleship cohort learning to view events through the lens of Jesus' prophecy about the last days? A monthly prayer meeting has begun. How many found time to attend the first meeting? How many will attend the second? Our parish priorities this year include serving the poor, how many neighborhood groups have specific projects underway to do that? Are you beginning, perhaps, in small ways to pay a price professionally or socially for your Christian commitment? Do you see persecution for what it is and welcome it? Or try to find ways to avoid it through compromise? What is the Spirit saying to us as a church in this Advent season? Are we ready for Christ's return? Or will it come upon us suddenly like a trap? Don't be like Denethor, compromised, despairing, unprepared for the return of the King. I conclude with John's greeting to the churches in Revelation chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen.